0: On today's episode of The Scholars, we're exploring the legacy of the band Aha uh-huh and the harsh realities of the sophomore slump. Sure, you know this song. <music> but do you know this song? Oh, 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 if the answer is no, get ready to have your mind blown by one of the biggest bands in the world to this day. It's all coming at you right now on a brand new episode of Discologist. Let's get on with the show. You you
1: You can tell this here. And it finishes here. Two men into one man.
0: Nearly a two word review
2: it just a shit sandwich. I will roll the record up to the maximum.
0: Welcome back, fellow music lovers. You are now tuning in to yet another exciting adventure with us here in Discalinus. We are so happy to have you here hanging out with us in our tiny shack just outside of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, as you're up front, got a great little show for you today. going to be talking about the band Aha. Uh-huh. Initially, we started off t- uh, wanting to talk about Scoundrel Day as their second album, which most of you probably don't know um, because we live in America. Outside of America, though, the album was fucking huge, as is the rest of their career. But uh, we got in a nice little conversation about uh, sophomore slumps, uh, about how we consume music, and uh, how we can support music going forward in these crazy times. Going to bring a couple of friends along on this journey. Welcome to the show right now, Mr. Wes Covey, and welcome back, Mr. Rick Ivey. How are you guys doing today?
3: Excellent. Very good.
0: We are, uh, Wes knows this, uh, we've done a lot of stupid things on this show. <laughs> and, and and But, you know, sometimes when you are considering music and its place in the universe, uh, it leads you into kind of dumb places. And sometimes you find th- those places to be actually quite awesome, which is why uh, we're starting off this sort of series of stuff that I'm going to be doing, uh, generally referred to as sophomore slumps. And the first person we're going to be talking about is Aha. Uh-huh. Everybody knows Take On Me, right? Every, everybody knows that. Like, you know, you, Rick, you and I are uh, of the exact age that that would happen. Wes yeah. is a little younger. But, yeah, everybody knows that song. And everybody knows uh, – some people know uh, Sun Always Shines on TV, which was the second signal. Go Down the Line, Hunting High and Low, which is the name of the album. Not too many people know that single because back in the days – it was a singles driven economy. But anyways, this this band from Norway, and in fact the most successful band from Norway of all time, uh made up next of to, Magne uh, next to
3: boxed.
0: Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, made up of of Magne uh Ferhoman, We're gonna go with that on keyboards, guitars, bass, and backing vocals. Uh Paul Waktar uh, Savoy on guitars, drums, percussion, and backing vocals, and uh Morten Harket on lead vocals and guitars. Uh, have had a career that us here in America, I think, just don't know anything about. It starts with this album, Scoundrel Days. This came the year after Hunting High and Low was a smash hit. Uh, It was – people were, like, really looking forward to it. They really wanted another video, like Take On Me. That was groundbreaking as far as filmmaking goes. And they got none of it. (laughs) And But – But there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, These guys, uh, you know, there's a quote from Rolling Stone around this time. Um, Well, actually, it's an interview in in 2010 where uh, Paul, excuse me, Magne, uh, he was talking about AHA's failure to conquer America. And he said, we were three headstrong Norwegians saying, no, we don't want to record another take on me. We're doing our own thing. Uh, We never expected to become teenage idols. So for us, it was like, let's move on. But for the record company, This was a successful formula, and anything we did to break with that was seen as a
3: disease. That's just your regular rock and roll cliche: three headstrong Norwegians trying to conquer (laughs) the U.S.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it is. It is a a tale as old as time. Right. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But uh, but you know, after this, they went on to put ten albums out since 1995. They broke up twice. They got back together bigger than ever, ever. and, like, they made uh, in 2017, uh, and this was part of the reason we're doing this, actually, uh, this remarkable uh, album for Unplugged. Yeah.
3: Uh,
0: it, that I think we've all, we've all seen. It's staggeringly good. And you understand, like, what uh, what the core of this band was about. You understand uh, how talented they, they truly were, and you start to feel a little guilty for not paying attention to them uh, the whole time, I wanna, I wanna start with a song, and then we're gonna really get into this. But uh, we'll just start with the title track. Uh, you know, and this was the first single, and coming off of all these great hits, you have something that is it's still uniquely Aha. Uh-huh, but I, you guys be the judge of this. Here's a little bit of Scandalous.
1: A scandal days
0: So you can see it's all there, uh, and when Morton opens up to sing, <laughs> holy fuck! It's so you know, good, that, it's it's so good. But there's also lines like "a bad thought slipped my wrists" or like sweat dripping in my mouth, and and you start to see uh, some of the problems maybe creeping in. Uh, you know what I've found in studying this album is that uh, a lot of it is in, in the songwriting. Uh, it just simply wasn't as strong as the stuff on Hunting High and Low. There's a very good reason for that. Uh, Paul Wachtar was the one who, who wrote all that. He wrote the lyrics and the music, and uh, and brought his friends in to do the other stuff, and that was great. Uh, but on this one, uh, again, a tale as old as, as time. The musicians were like, "Man, we want more to do," we, and so <laughs> musicians, and, yeah, and and, and and so they they all like chipped in on songs, and and we're gonna. Try to figure out part of this is figuring out who wrote what on this but uh they, they tried to figure out to write other songs for this and um it was the first time they'd done it and honestly i think it showed
3: it's interesting um uh, when you said earlier i think you said uh almost feel guilty in not having uh, well for me i that resonated with me because i was thinking i i actually did feel guilty for sort of like dropping them off after this album for some of the reasons that you said. And I, I had bought Hunting High and Low when I was 17, I think, 16 or 17. And I used to listen to it all the time on cassette. And then I bought this one and I really liked the first um, couple of tracks. But there were a few lines that threw me and I sort of, you know, didn't go come back to it. But I was shocked when I put this on when we decided to do this podcast, and I put the went for a walk, put the headphones on, and I knew almost every word. I couldn't believe, and I had not listened to it in a really long time. And um, yeah, even though some of the lyrics are um, challenging and dark, yeah, it, it gets much darker than the first album. It
0: definitely does, and much stranger.
3: Yes, definitely. It, you know, we, we were kind of laughing about that line, cut my wrist on a bad thought. And I tend to not immediately dismiss things like that. I usually think, that's really weird. I wonder what's going on here. And that tends to make me look for more connections that probably aren't there. <laughs> but I start wondering, like, there was very little in the first album that that was dark like this and yet this album takes on some strong um challenges or um lyrical ideas
2: yeah,
0: it's, a bit, it's about relationships and dissolution of those.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's, it, it, uh, you know, I'll go, I'll go to the, my thing that I say every time we talk about anything that has words, which is that I'm terrible at listening to lyrics. So I can't, um, you know, I can't talk as much um, about the lyrics. I, I can definitely echo um, certain clunky parts. Um, you know, the swing of things, the second track, which is, you know, probably my favorite of, on here. Um, just like the, the thing that kind of sticks out about this whole album um, is when he's singing the line, um, we've come to the point of no turning back. And it's just like, like, that's not really a phrase. <laughs> um, you know, we've come to the point and you're expecting of no return and it just right, yeah. like, goes this other way. And it's kind of like, <laughs> I mean, it's There's not like it doesn't work. barrier. <laughs> right. it, it works. It's effective, but it's clunky. And it's like, there is a phrase that you could have used that's like common language that you could fit in there. And of course, like, is that good or bad songwriting? It's maybe may a different, you know, going for cliche phrases. That's a different conversation. But, um, but some of it is clunky, um, in some ways, which is obviously different from, um, is it obnoxiously, like, I, I saw something at one point that was saying, like, is, is scoundrel days the first emo record? Yes, I saw that. Same and thing. so is it like, you know, obnoxiously like young heartbreak, love, annoying type of just like sad sack boy thing? Um, or is there an actual real darkness in there? And, you know, I'm certainly open to real darkness um, when you're getting there and, you know, less interested <laughs> in a lot of ways, you know, but, but when I was, I mean, you know, I, as, as Kevin said, I'm a couple years younger um, than you guys. So I, um, you know, definitely experienced the video in particular of Take On Me and loved that video, loved that song, you know, as a kid, um, I was not at the age to have connected with that music at the time, um, you know, to have heard this as a teenager for the first time would be different, of course, than hearing it younger you know
0: yeah it was it was for me it was, so i was uh when it came out so I was 14 15 and stuff it was a little bit of a letdown but i was also like getting is just rolling into stuff like purple rain and come out brothers in arms like the big albums and i famously had this this curse where i always get into a band after their big album so ask me about Rick Springfield's towel sometime. Maybe <laughs> maybe we'll do this, but but you know it, it, you find out what what I've done is it, since it is sort of embrace that, and you find out uh, about what kind of fan you are of the music, and um, in my experience, I've found that there is it, it makes everything a little richer by diving into this stuff. That said. Like, I don't know what they're talking about when they say, uh, girl, we're looking for a little bewildered girl. We're looking for a little bewildered girl. We're looking for the whales. So you know, and and there could be a, uh, you know, I mentioned the language barrier here. That that was certainly on take on me. You know, this this uh, today is another day to find you shining away. I'll be coming for your love. Okay, yeah, you know, the take on me is is tr- translated, and what it actually means is touch me. Um, and and that and and that is about a relationship, and the guy doesn't know like if this is real, is he being played by his partner, or what, what's going on and and so you have these all over there but i think you know it's maybe they were just edited out like uh you know paul had the sense to like really rein this stuff in on this he lets a lot of stuff go one of the fascinating things about this album uh for me though is that this also happened with the music now um, there's a lot on here. In fact, I, I think it's towards the end. I don't know if it's Weight of the Wind or maybe, maybe. that sound, It's just a rip of Take on Me, the, the actual drum beat. It's, it's everything, and that's fine. It's great. The record company got their familiarity in there. But uh, the, they used uh, Yamaha DX7 and Roland Junos, which were uh, high-tech back then, and now you can get like a DX7 on your iPad. Uh, but it, but it, but it was like it wasn't the dawn of synths, but it was like the dawn of these Prosumer synths that were coming out, and all the artists were using them. Uh, I watched a Dead show the other night, and, the, and the, they had a DX7 on stage, so this was like widespread as just what people chose to do with it.
3: I remember going to the music store, seeing the DX7, and just being like, "Oh my God, what? It, there's just so much that's possible now."
0: <laughs> I have a DX100 in my closet. Oh, great. For ten years, I have not gotten the power thing fixed, so I'm going to do that once this, this whole pandemic is over. Uh, even though I now have a whole synth situation, uh, but <laughs> that's the band name for synth situations. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so, but this song, October, uh, it, it's a whole little special bit of something. So we're going to listen to this. Uh, if you guys want to get yourself a cocktail, uh, and we'll, we'll be back. Here's here's a little bit of October. So if you were thinking to yourself, hey, I used to have a Casio keyboard and I could make that whole song myself. You are correct, sir. You just hit the button and it makes the beat and it makes the thing. That said, uh, and, and that song's hilarious. Like, it, there is a sophistication to their music and their use of synths and everything. Um, none of it is anywhere near that song. It's just, <laughs> that is just uh, as cheesy as it comes. But, uh, again... When uh, Morton opens his mouth to sing, he turns it into a whole other thing uh, and like a vibe almost like a Nick Drake. I just watched the uh, five-hour cut of Until the End of the World, Vim Vendors. You could see this going on in a bar, you know, and this would be at that time, it would be this is the music of the future. Right. Because you've replaced all the instruments with this shitty keyboard. So, (laughs) So interesting choices were
3: made, is what I'm saying. And to Telescope Ahead, when when you listen to that Unplugged album, it was like, oh my God, this is why I love this band. Because these arrangements translate really well to real instruments. And they just chose to do them with synths. And I think that's why I sort of... I think it, you you sort of described exactly why I dropped them off. And it was just kind of, is this sound too too much like it's trying too much to be synth pop or something it just felt like an artifice and yet I really like the melodies and I could not get them out of my head even the lyrics were were intriguing to me at times and um, to me the first and I had it on a cassette so I had the first album uh, the first outside ending at Manhattan Skyline and I feel like This whole first side is almost in itself a story, and I, I would I, it kind of ends with Manhattan skyline because when that song ends, there's this cadence that you know this completion that feels very done, and I used to I used to ride the bus a lot in, um, when I was. Listening to my Walkman in college, early years of college, and I would I remember having this on cassette and listening to it. And I would frequently, like, you know, nod off, fall asleep. And you know, this is the perfect album to sort of imagine a dreamscape from, because you've got this background where you've got, uh, you know, the "Take on Me" thing, where the, the the video was really groundbreaking because it sort of combined animation and, uh, you know, real characters. Somebody jumping into a TV screen. And so I started to re listen to this album, imagining this guy, you know, going to a, a museum and the paintings kind of coming to life, going inside the paintings. And each song sort of became a soundscape for that. And Manhattan Skyline even ends with a great lyric where it's like there's a, a, a picture on the wall of a Manhattan skyline. So I. I found revisiting this album ex- extremely refreshing because i just felt like wow i i almost was embarrassed to like this at one point like my friends who were getting into the sex pistols and ministry and things like that i you know wouldn't necessarily have brought up that yeah have you checked out aha's second album (laughs) (laughs) but looking back there's a lot to like in this even though there's some missteps
2: I'd like to just jump in just for a moment and say that Rick it was a missed opportunity that you didn't get to pitch that idea for their like full album of videos, you know? <laughs> I mean, maybe it's a little close to what they did before, but like I'm feeling that. Like I, I would like to see that, you know. But then I <laughs> yeah. you know I, I'd also just just want to say just like even a song like October um, that, you know, <laughs> Kevin did a pretty good job of pointing out its weaknesses. Um, but it's got an atmosphere. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's eerie. It's spooky. Um, those sounds are effective for that. By you
0: minute know. one, you're in. Yeah, exactly. Right. It, is, it is creating a
2: feel. Yeah, exactly. And that's where the, like, the, the lyrics don't matter. You've got that type of a feel behind it. And then, you know, as we've kind of said a couple different times, you've got that voice, which can pull off a whole lot of. Um, a whole lot of things.
0: It's it's miraculous, and I think it, you know to, to your point, Rick. Like what we when we consider hit albums by people, uh, there there is that instant dopamine hit. There is that instant you know you hear "Take on Me" still to this day, and you're just like, yes, mm-hmm. like ready to go. And it sparks so many types of memories. But like we, that's not immediate in music. Period like it you know people don't write hits they don't there's no album that's just like here's a thousand hits you know or a playlist so, so it's it this requires you uh to t- take a little more time and do a little more work to find like uh, find out what this band is really about and Absolutely. i'm not just talking about aha uh-huh, i'm talking about but to find out like in aha's case it is you come for the take on me but then you get to this or even the next album And you understand that you have easily one of the best singers in the world.
2: And that's one of the other things And when you're talking about, you know, not only does everyone love take on me, but when that song comes on, that dopamine hit hits everyone in the room. And you know that everyone in the room or just about everyone in the room is going to be going for that note. Yeah. And all I, know. I need to say is that <laughs> no, and everybody knows what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> like the room, like if you're in a bar or whatever, the room's gonna get quiet for that little bit. You're like, oh, oh right. lift up, lift up. Okay, here it comes everybody.
3: So apparently that song is one of the biggest mistakes to do karaoke. <laughs> because apparently everyone wants to do it and no one can except him.
0: No, no one except him. And and so if if we're just talking about this in terms of aha. Like that tells me that like taking a look at all these albums that maybe you know the sophomore slump as it were, uh, you know that maybe that's not uh, we we need to take another look and and see how we consider our bands and what we what we like you know when you I was talking with uh, Daria recently and we were talking about Town uh, to get down stay down uh, who has an album out and talking about how we support artists especially now how we support artists and it, it has to be more. Uh, well, I guess it doesn't have to be, but it should be more, uh, more than about just like, this makes me feel great right now, and even all the way in Norway and all the way with their Scandinavian feels, which Wes knows I'm not now, <laughs> but, uh, I feel, uh, coming back to this record now, something that I never felt as a kid, I had the tape as a kid and, you know, I played it in my Walkman, something I never felt. I feel this connection because ultimately they're singing about stuff, uh, except for whales I don't get that but they're singing about stuff uh, <laughs> that that is is sort of binds us together as humans and you know that's like 30 years ago yeah <laughs> you know and it's still the same
3: yeah you know I, I feel like there's a there is a lot of albums in this time like the 80s that um, could fall into that category of like easily dismissing because they're up A time period like for example um depeche modes early records which i listened to incessantly in when i was 16 and 17 and just listening to this i was like i should revisit some of that and i was like actually there is a lot to really admire in terms of three and four part harmony in terms of these interesting synth arrangements and that's one thing i wanted to talk about this album it did um at that time period when w- with synth pop you'd have these intro introductions to songs that sort of laid out a four or five voice uh polytonal you know section that would introduce the song and each section or each part of uh, each synth part was actually singable you know you could i in listening to the beginning of the swing of things There's there's this you know immediacy to it that feels like it's not present in songs anymore. But there was because people had the DX7 because they had these things like what could we do that sort of elevates this to a a, um, an arranged uh, something that almost a composer would feel you know excited about. I, I think that's pretty interesting. Have
0: you heard this band Maximilian and the Reinhardt?
3: <laughs> I <laughs> have, I've, I, yeah, from I understand, <laughs> they're pure, but pure obscure. geniuses.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, no, that actually explains. Yeah, what you said is, is a lot has to do a lot with that. No, that's right. It's a way to write songs. You write them more cinematically. Uh, they have to tell. They have to tell a story, and not. Um, it, it's it's weird how people tell stories when you get away from the American, uh, whether it's midwestern country and western model or stuff, and how. People tell their stories, uh, you know, the really extreme version of this now for like Scandinavian stuff is going to be metal, you know, and those are a whole different thing. And that like infected American metal and stuff. But these guys are like looking at stuff like, look, I, I mocked. We're looking for the whales. That means something. And it's on me that I didn't look it up. <laughs> there is a meaning to that song. And it's important. And I'll, honestly, I'd say it's important culturally. Like it's not just some toss away like save the planet song. So there's some there's some meaning in that, um, you know, and like those type of things again are what is is so fascinating when you start looking back at this stuff, and uh, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. But I got through listening to this today, and I'm like, holy shit! I think this record is powerful.
3: <laughs> I do too, and I, I um, it, it really hit me when I listened to the unplugged. especially the unplugged Manhattan skyline, because I was really drawn to that song when I first heard it um, because of the chorus, you know, I was like, Oh, they're bringing in some angst, some serious guitar, which, which uh, prior to that, I know they've had guitar in their first album, but not distorted, you know, power chords on the chorus. And, and yet they do the opposite on the unplugged version where it gets quiet on that chorus. And, um, when I recall scoundrel days, I remembered two things waiting on a bus stop, listening to it, actually having a hard time hearing because of the wind. Remember how cheap the, the headphones used to be on, on Sony Walkman. And I remember thinking, am I not getting into this because of the wind? And which is ironic because the weight of the wind is one of the songs. But then you know, Manhattan Skyline hit And I was like, ah, no, this is great This song is great But I, for some reason, I just did not revisit it I must have listened to it many times, though Because I knew the words We keep bringing up Manhattan Skyline
0: I want to play a little bit of it, because it is great It's also a weird collaboration for them uh, But uh, this is a little bit It's both kinds of music, man Here's Manhattan Skyline I'm
1: trying. Self, say, my boat's leaving now, so we shake hands and cry. Now I must leave.
0: And Lighter's fucking up, dude. <laughs> he kicks into that. That is like Tommy Lee and the rotating drum kit. It's just fucking, that is, that is rock and roll. It. You know, it's funny. that This is a collaboration uh, because they hadn't actually collaborated on songs. And they just accidentally were writing two songs. One rocked. One was sensitive. And there you have it. It's Manhattan skyline. It's fucking. It's rock and roll, dude.
3: Yeah, and we were talking uh, lyrically earlier. I, I think this is one of the more successful pieces. I mean, this is the song that I did not have to hear to remember the lyrics. The first verse: "I sit and watch umbrellas fly. I'm trying to keep my newspaper dry." I mean, to me, that's the open, great opening line to a short story. I mean, there's I something don't about to cry that- again. Yeah, (laughs) I mean yeah that's that's the part where I was slightly embarrassed because you know like when you're you know in early college years and you hear it's heartfelt but you don't always want to put your heart on a sleeve right out there and yet they chose to how they chose to do it you know is great like with that yes and vulnerability you know like That's one thing that I um, admire about the music that I loved and turned away from and now I'm sort of revisiting is there's a lot that people put out there that might be embarrassing. And yet it still connects to the heart and has a powerful resonance with me. Um, Whatever that means (laughs) for for others, I'm not sure, but.
0: What well, is stuff that you were, we were all embarrassed to enjoy? Yes. Like, I hope that we're all, like, at least more in touch with our emotions than
2: we were when we were 15. That would be ideal. We talk a fair amount about um, honesty, um, you know, speaking who the artist really is, like, not putting on artifice uh, and things like that on, you know, a lot of episodes of this show. Um, and that can come through in a lot of different ways. And I think that to an extent, for me, 80s production loses a lot of that honesty and vulnerability because you're putting into digital things in a way like now we have digital equipment that can um, convey emotion um, in a way that to me, this type of this era just doesn't quite do that. Um, You know, I remember um, I had. I had been really into uh, electronic music in my late teens um, and early 20s, and then it kind of faded out of it because I was just like, you know, I, I'm not, imp- like, I've spent my entire life trying to learn how to play these instruments. Like, you spend a couple months learning to use a program and then, like, put together some beats. Like, I, you know, I'm ter- not terribly impressed. And then I heard um, Burial's second album um, in 2007, I think it was, Untrue. Um, um, and it just absolutely floored me. I mean, it was one of these, like, I put it on late one night working on a particular project, and um, it was just kind of like, all right, you know, right, I'll finish this up. And I ended up, like, staying up, um, you know, hours that night, um, you know, listening to that album, I think it was like three times in a row, because I didn't know that you could convey emotion like that through electronic music. And to me, why AHA works in the way that some of the other bands from this time period don't connect with me um, is that... Morton's voice is able to convey that honesty, vulnerability. There's a fragility to um, to his voice um, that to me gets through that emotional power that's lacking in a lot of synth-based music.
0: They Well, and also like what you said, Rick, you know, wearing their heart on their sleeve. Like they're, they're writing about like actual deep shit.
2: Yeah. Like AHA is.
0: is not like a fluff band. Right. Let's just like make that clear. They're not a fluff band. And we talked about Depeche Mode, and, and I, there's a really close connection with these guys. In Depeche Mode, it's just different sides of like what you can do with synths. Uh, you know, Aha took it a little more uh, orchestral, if you will, even though they're only using they were limited by these certain instruments. Depeche Mode was going for a darker, more immediate uh, version of this, this type of music, but the instrumentation is literally the same. And they're using the same stuff, the same gear, and it's just they're going like dark emotions and and the type of emotions that like you are you're wearing black, you're like sad boy or scream boy, whatever. You <laughs> and yeah, and and you know, and 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 Aha uh-huh wasn't willing to go down that that path. They wanted to, they didn't want to stay as the pop stars, but they they were still that's just who they were.
2: You know, you know when you're talking about instrumentation, um, you know that brings up one of the other kind of questions that I had. Um, you know, because you guys, you know, you were both um, you were both in college when this came out, or late high school, high school. early high, and high school, early. College. Yeah, so you know, at, at that era, um, I would have been six when this came out. You know, so sorry, I didn't hear it until later. Um, and um, this this was eighty six, right? right this, yeah, yeah. So, um, so you know, obviously I have looked back, um, to an extent, but, but as I said, because I don't really connect with synth based music, honestly, like basically the entire period of the eighties, I just, you know, have often skipped over, you know? Um, and it's funny because even with some of the stuff, um, you know, I've listened to a lot of eighties punk, I've listened to a lot of eighties metal. I've listened to a lot of eighties hip hop, um, you know, stuff like that. Um, but not really in the pop side, not really in the rock side, because I don't, the the production doesn't speak to me um obviously there's exceptions but i'm curious with some of this stuff um you know where the influences are coming um and it's interesting because i'll come back to manhattan skyline in that one in a minute um because i'm pretty sure kevin can tell us where the influences are on that that uh, guitar rock coming in um but one of the things that i noticed um it's Maybe like the second time putting this back on. I had heard this album before, but I didn't know it well, you know. And so when we started talking about doing this episode, I was like, all right, yeah, I got to listen again. Um, and it was like maybe the second time um, putting it on. So pretty quickly in listening to it, in the swing of things, I was hearing. um Honestly, maybe even, um, a little bit of a ripoff of word on a wing by Bowie, um, which, you know, from station to station. And it's like, there's certain chord changes. Um, there's certain melodic lines that, that sound really, really close to that. And I would be, you know, I would expect that these guys were probably listening to Bowie, um, And, but this is where a lot of the kind of, you know, with the stuff that I just don't know as much about, I like to think a lot, um, just about, you know, where, what are people's influences, um, instrumentally, what are people's influences, um, in terms of the type of the music they're listening to, you know, knowing that the vast majority of people who make a particular style of music listen to a lot more styles than just what they make. Um, you know, I'm really curious. And, and, and then again, because this is a group who is Norwegian, um, you know, obviously I assume that they were listening to a lot of the bands who are their contemporaries um to yeah, an extent Norwegian also folk. yeah so so but i'm curious like like when that guitar rock section comes in on manhattan skyline like what is that is it van halen like what's um you you, you can see see if you see if you agree with me rick it's probably like pyromania
0: oh huh? def yeah. Leopard, yeah yeah it could be. be yeah or your favorite band rat yeah. Oh, uh, can, can we talk about <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> uh, no, uh, you know, one thing um, that I've come to believe about this time period, and uh, wasn't apparent when I was living through it, but uh, you know, it was when synths became popular to use and every band could get them. I mean, it wasn't the dawn of that. They, they had synths back in the 70s. But when they got into pop stuff and, and the – production instinct was to try to recreate these natural instruments yes using the synth instrument and the idea is actually just economics like if you don't have to hire a drummer or you don't have to hire a symphony and you have your shitty horn sound on your keyboard or city and and you have a lot of there's a lot of interesting stuff, and this is this is why the 80s is probably my favorite era of music, uh, for this reason because people were so experimental with that, even if they didn't understand that the, they kind of were like trying to figure out how to cut costs, but they they were doing stuff, and in in that experimentation, you came out with just some wild shit. Prince Prince being like the 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 number one example of that. You know if you he used a lin drum machine uh and nobody can use a lin drum machine like he did to this day you know it's it's like dilla you can't you can't do that uh because he didn't see it as a drum machine he was just like this is just an instrument
2: and i'm gonna like do it and and didn't he didn't try to replace drums and i think that's where a lot of these early sounds um i had a long period where a lot of this type of sound um i kind of said nobody but stevie wonder should be allowed yeah. to use it. Stevie was able to pull it off herbie Hancock. you know, there's all these uh, the good great stories. Um herbie there's Hancock's Clabin autobiography has sorry.
0: There's clavinet on this album. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. Well, and, and Herbie Hancock has these great stories in his autobiography about how he and Stevie Wonder were like competing. Like, they would basically try to outbid each other to the company coming out with the new tech. Like, who, who found out about it and then try to outbid each other? It's like, yeah. And then they would take it in these very experimental directions, um, but experimental based with the background that Herbie and Stevie Wonder yeah. had. You know? And then you <laughs> hand it to a bunch of kids in the 80s and just well, like, yeah,
0: here you go. And we're all musicians, right? That's exciting. Yeah, if some if somebody if somebody work. brings you Rick, it says here's a thing. It's a toy. It's gonna sound like a bass. You can do stuff with it. You're gonna mess with it. Right? Yeah,
3: I have. <laughs> yeah, you, very little gonna... success. But <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. that's
0: the point. Like most people don't like you get some weird shit and you're just like oh, I'm just gonna play with this and you don't have a lot of success. But it's people like Aha uh-huh who took it and Depeche Mode and and a lot of to answer your question, Wes, a lot of these synth fans who took it and did have su- have success with it because they were uh, simultaneously just like gear nerds and interested in writing good songs. That's actually the, the main component here.
2: Like the the top level is I got to write a good song. And then everything underneath is how do I get to that? And for me, that's when 80s music, despite the production, can work. You know, there are some of those songs, some of those melodies, some of the best writing we've had. And again, like particularly the melodies that I tend to connect with, with that stuff. Um, but when you get those, I guess that's one of the reasons I've never really delved into a lot of the albums from this time period. Um, you know, I know a lot of the singles, um, you know, cause I, I was still a kid in the eighties, you know, and at that point we had the radio, you know, so I know a lot of the singles, um, but I never really delved into the albums because I feel like you kind of got these throwaway songs oftentimes that aren't able to hold up to the fact if, if I don't like the production, but I love the song, I'm still in, um, you know, I've yeah, listened to George Harrison's solo catalog, for example. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> God, I love George Harrison's solo stuff. <laughs> His solo stuff is amazing in the production. Yeah. honestly. What about like, Wings, though? Yeah, let's not go there. <laughs> um, the production on a lot of Harrison stuff is just not – I I really, really struggle with it, but the songs are good enough to yeah. keep me in most of the time, much of the time. Right. So uh, you mentioned
3: influences in aha, uh, and and actually he has, a, as a guest um, vocalist, on scoundrel days on the, um, the MTV Unplugged is Ian McCullough from Echo and the Bunnymen. And he talks about coming to England in 81 and, you know, meeting Ian and meeting Echo and the Bunnymen and coming into that scene. So that's when they started to, I guess, they became part of a international sensation because they moved to England i don't know if this is all true but from what i a little bit of i've read it, it seemed that's where things got started and i and i think the things that i don't like about 80s production i i totally agree with you west it's it's the imitation of acoustic instruments that sounds somehow wrong from the get-go and yet um the bands that ignored that and i i what i'd like about 80s synth production is when they tend to use synths percussively somehow that seems to work better for me than than um the lush high heavy reverb stuff and the drum sounds of the 80s i just cannot get past they're just explosively loud and big and
0: but so so ramp this up like a few years and you're talking about yeah there's two types of drum sounds in the 80s uh, to my mind. There's the uh there's the Bruce Springsteen and more importantly the Life Search Pageant by R.E.M., Bill Berry drum sound, uh which is the best drum sound ever recorded. Like and people and people have like acknowledged that and they chase it. Mm-hmm. And like and they still can't get it. Springsteen gets pretty close. But there's also the stuff that like Pink Floyd had a resurgence in the late eighties. And there's so I much saw discussion. That in the late 80s. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Uh, and then there's so much discussion about that drum sound. And for me, like that actually works. And and I hear that a lot in this. You know, people laying the groundwork for like what can you do with drums? They're still in this mindset of like, why don't we just replace it? It's something new because look, you get tired of hitting a regular like s- snare and just like maybe I don't know. Uh, but it's all it's all aesthetic choices, and these people at this level were able to experiment and and try out stuff in public. Whether that was good or not, I don't know.
2: You know, I would say also when you're talking about um, you know shifts of of, I mean, obviously a lot of this new these new instruments and these new approaches in the '80s came about simply because of technological advancements. You know, so it couldn't have happened at different time periods. But I also think to a certain extent you know, let's be honest, a lot of instruments were taken seemingly as far as they were being able to be taken yeah. in the like, you know, late 60s, because I want to bring Hendrix in, um, you know, for electric guitar, obviously, like a lot of people would still say that he kind of, you know, said everything you can say on electric, you know, I don't personally agree with that, because um, I think there's been a lot of, you know, great advancements since, but the 70s is this time period, we have a lot of people who are classically trained musicians who are playing in the rock realm you know extraordinarily complex music um the influence of jazz as jazz is becoming less insular insular and and um you know holding its techniques and its trainings in as much um you got people who can just play their instruments every direction you want to go and so then at some point when you're thinking about creation you kind of say okay i'm not going to top that So how else can I try to proceed? And particularly if you're a young person, you know, if you're a teenager, like every now and then, obviously a teenager comes around who can play whatever instrument, you know, to, 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 those levels, you know, you get Tony Williams suddenly like sitting in with, you know, playing Miles Davis's band at 17, like that does happen, you know, but, um, but, but it's very, very rare. Um, And so in between, I think you get a lot of teenagers and this is where a lot of the, like, you know, emotion of stuff like punk or, or garage rock, like stuff like that, you know, they don't need to know how to play. And that's not the point. Um, Their music is great because of passion, because of emotion and things like that. Um, This is a, just a different take on that. And for me, a lot of these sounds lack the passion and the emotion that I need to connect with it, you know, especially as somebody who's not listening as closely to the lyrics.
0: Yeah, for sure. It's a, uh, you know, as we start to sort of wind this down, it is, um, it's, it's definitely two different worlds, uh, to, to that point. And there was a lot of stuff. We haven't, you know, we haven't talked a lot about eighties punk on the show. Uh, and I don't know why that is. Well, I do know why, but, but we, we, we should talk a lot about that because that was going on as a backlash to this. But, but I suspect much like we're seeing now is like, everything is getting sort of stirred into a pot and anything is possible and anything is permitted that if you got these guys from aha together with some of the punk guys back then, they would be like, and talk about songwriting and talk about the craft, not like, not how it sounded. I, I think you'd find a lot of them had, A lot in common and what they were trying to do was a lot in common it's just different ways to go about it uh which is uh, it's just a short way of saying that capitalism ruins everything And, (laughs) and so you put people in in competition who are not in competition they're out there trying to make the world better through art but um but you know with this album i think uh you know what is the takeaway you know we just went on a on like a 30 minute tangent on, on what these sounds mean, you know, for an album that did not good in the uh, did not do good in the United States, but did crazy good everywhere else in the world. So, one, I, I think, understand that, like, we aren't the world. <laughs> we gotta, you know, there's a whole there. there's a whole, whole big world out there, and it always has been out there but uh, but, two, you know what that's it that's no um but uh you know, when you think about this album that you you loved, um I've been making jokes about Arcade Fire Reflector all day, um well, actually, for four years, but it's not here nor there um but uh when you think about an album from a band that you love, and then the next album disappoints you in some way but you invested in that band for some reason, in that group of humans. So so even though like you were sort of like, you know, for whatever reason, uh, not paying attention to them because they didn't satisfy you as much, like accept that you're not gonna be satisfied all the time and go looking for stuff like this. And it, it'll enable you to like ask questions and honestly have them answered. Like I had well a lot of a lot of what I now love about this album, I did not love a month ago. I didn't yes. know. I didn't I know the same
3: way. It. You know,
0: and it was simply because it, it was it was this was literally a joke between me and Wes, and then you Rick said, "Hey, it's hell yeah, Scoundrel Days," and yeah. and it leads to the and it leads to this and a discussion about what music means and what. Uh, what you can do with it, and now, like, I will, well, I have been uh, tearing through their entire catalog, and I can tell you, like, what albums, what albums aren't great, and what albums are, you know, and what albums, and then if you look at, like, a larger, like, expand that out, like, that's every band. Yeah. So, so you know, the point is, like, dig in. Uh, you got time, people, still.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah. You know, one of the things I wanted to mention when you were when talking about 80s punk, there there were 80s punk bands who married these two sounds somewhat, um, bringing the synths in. Like, we're talking like Pink Flags by Wire. Um, the Stranglers had some amazing stuff that they did with synths. And yet their, their sound somehow carries through with an authenticity that you don't always hear in the production of this. And... Um, there's um there's something about giving a band like aha the benefit of the doubt and saying hey I wonder how I wonder what this is you know like I listen that's that's the exact question I had because when you mentioned it I think it was a twitter post I was like I remember I think I loved that record and immediately didn't <laughs> and I don't know why and when I listened to it back, I was like, oh, my God, I do love this. And now I'm not embarrassed to say it. And um, and more importantly, it, it's
0: everything doesn't have to be the best. Yes. All the time. <laughs> everything isn't awesome. Right. Like very few <laughs> things are actually awesome.
3: <laughs> Most things are just sort of like, eh. And, if you have a title for this podcast, it could be "Everything Isn't Always Awesome." <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, um, maybe. I, uh, yeah, but it's uh, it's worth digging into. And thank you guys for hanging out and digging into this with me. And we'll we'll. Uh, it, you guys want to talk about the outfield's banging? sometime soon because <laughs> we can go there. Wes just shriveled. I'm not going to do that to you, Wes. Uh, Thank you guys so much for hanging out. And uh we're going to take a quick break and come back this and uh finish the thing out. This breath-taking beauty
1: in which I can hide. Oh, there's a world full out there of people I fear. But given time, I'll get into the swing of things.
0: uh uh-huh, Scoundrel days, right there for you. Been out for about thirty odd years, and um, yeah, check it out. Hopefully, that sort of piqued your interest. I know it was always a—it's always a pleasure to talk about music with Wes and Rick. But uh, yeah, this one was a long time coming, so it it's great to sit down, hash this out. Had some feelings; they had some feelings, and I think we got it all done. Uh, got to get things done here before episode five hundred. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully when this is all said and done and we can go back out to live music and uh, see bands in the real, then Aha uh, uh-huh, will be back out on tour. I know they had something planned for this year initially, and uh, they'll be out on tour, because I, I, for one, would love to see that unplugged thing. If you haven't seen it, there's it's going to be in the show notes a link to it, but it's fucking phenomenal. So uh, definitely check that out. And, you know, start digging back through your old music. Maybe stuff that uh, is a little underappreciated, uh, back then or now, you'll you'll find uh, that you uh, it has new meaning or just uh, or just you love it now, which is even the better. more things to love is is a uh, more better world. As they say, Uh, that is it for this episode of Discology. If you like what you heard, find someone in your community, an arts uh, space, an artist, uh, venue, restaurant, something that makes your community yours and support them with uh, your money if you are able. Right now, that means uh, for restaurant stuff, buying gift cards. For some venues, it means like buying T-shirts, whatever you can do. Uh, Get out there and help because uh, these people need your help the most coming up in the next few weeks on discologist we're going to keep it in 80s land uh for this for this week we're going to be talking about another album that i don't know how we didn't ever talk about this in 500 episodes but um uh, going to be talking about crowded house so get ready for that it's has it's one of my favorite bands whether you knew that or not but now you do and uh so we're going to be talking about that and then you have got a, a series of interviews uh, I've been doing with people uh, talking about the global pandemic, the impact on artists, on venues, uh, on the industry as a whole. And so we're going to be start rolling those out. And uh, they're really, uh, really something else and really sort of touching and, and lets us know where we're at right now. And, and hopefully sort of shines the light on where we can go. So stay tuned for that. That is it. We are out of here. Uh, stay safe. Stay sanitized. Stay sane. We'll be back in a few short days. Until then, be good to your ears, but be better to your people.
1: soon. <laughs> oh. Kenobi <laughs>